This week on Keeping Faith. Around the time when I was having to go through the coming of age process, the church where we had to write a sort of our credo <laughs> and wrap my brain around like, what is it that I believe? And I remember it being like a trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle without feeling like I was abandoning anyone. And what ended up coming out of that was I kind of termed what my religion was, which was Junipegatarian. Talia Chernow grew up between worlds, being raised Jewish by her father and attending Unitarian Universalist services and pagan rituals with her mother. So by the time she reached her coming of age in both the Jewish and Unitarian traditions, she'd come to see herself as a mix of it all, as a Junipegatarian. And now, it doesn't surprise her she's added one more tradition to the mix, as she shares her life with an atheist raised Muslim. Talia and I talk about how she makes all these diverse, and sometimes opposing, traditions fit. She shares her struggle to claim her place as a full member of any one of them, and to be seen by others that way too. And she reflects on how wrestling with all of this has taught her faith is something she defines for herself, and that it's possible to be 100% of more than one thing too. Because how do you make sense of everything you are? This is her story. I'm Marin Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. And Talia Chernow lives on Lenape territory in New York City. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com about for a list of indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local native center or council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life right now that has connected you with your sense of faith or hope? Yeah. In, in preparing for this, I found it really interesting that this, of course, was the hardest question for me to actually wrap my head around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because right at this moment in time, I don't think I'm alone. And, and the accessibility of despair is so close. Mm. that um, really being able to weed out my experiences with hope or faith is challenging. But it was a very, I think, very helpful in a lot of ways. I think that I find, I find the greatest place of my own sense of hope in action and in particularly in communities in action. Mm. The closest story is that recently it was the Monday after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and it was a really, really difficult weekend also with it being Rosh Hashanah and in that moment of taking stock of the new year and new beginnings and endings and that overlap. And the Monday I had my, uh, 
my Zoom gym workout. And I was so apprehensive of being able to wrap my brain about around even doing that and taking that time. But I got on and and the way that this works is there are like 30 people on this call and we always do a name game at the beginning. And sometimes it's very silly. You know, what's your favorite utensil kind <laughs> of thing. But the woman who was leading it decided that day that it was, you know, what are you doing this week to be active and to make change before the election? And it was 30 people and almost every single person had an action that they'd already been doing or that they had found over that exact same weekend. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we were all sort of sending each other links. We had this sense of um, there was a sense of community and possibility and sort of strength and resilience that hadn't been there before. And it was born out of all of us having enough of a sense of hope to reach out to find something to do. Hmm. And in that moment of us all coming together, sort of surprised ourselves into it feeling bigger. Yeah. Um, so that was, and that's part of what I mean in, in communities in action. I think we have so many other broader public versions of that happening right now. And, and I mean those as well. But that's how I, I find my outlet away from despair. Yeah. It's an interesting thing in this this time. I've heard I've heard this echoed by so many people that uh as challenging as technology is in our lives and is in our world that it has provided an incredible tool for us to find community in a very broad sense um over a lot of distance in these really challenging times. So that's kind of what I'm hearing you also say in that too. Yeah, I I think it's particularly as an outlet from a place of extreme physical isolation, that its need is, our need for it is so much stronger because we don't have those modes to see those people. And because of it, it sometimes has a different weight and it has a different sense of space that meetings that you would otherwise have in person that would be, you know, rote or, don't have that they, it has something else. So yeah, I think that that's, I don't have an avenue right now in, in quarantine really for community that is not through some mode of technology. So as much as I may <laughs> rail against it in some ways, without it, it would be much harder. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, as you've said, too, how the activism, how the community organizing has also extended into that realm in such a more profound way, I think, too. Yeah. And seeing how, thankfully, those tools were already existing in these realms. So we are, we're not in, in full beta mode, basically, in the midst of this moment. But the importance and how that has existed is remarkable. Because how are you supposed to knock on people's, you can't knock on people's doors. So what do you do? So you, you, you know, knock on their pocket, <laughs> <They keep laughs> their phone instead. Yeah, that's true. 
So I find it really interesting that you put together activism and community action with faith. And I'm curious as to how far that goes back in your life. So I'm curious about what your life was like growing up. So what were you taught about the world and what were you taught about faith and hope? Yeah, um, I think it's telling that that's where that connection came from me now, because I think it, it goes back to just about every experience within faith and even religious communities that I've grew up in when I was a child. So I, I grew up in California, in the Bay Area, specifically East Bay, Oakland and Berkeley. And off the bat, I'm for many people will have that will spur certain connotations for people. For the most part, it will mean it will evoke a political image for people. And that's not entirely wrong. Uh, it's very much a part of how I was raised and the community I lived in and the expectations of sort of political literacy and citizenry was woven into how my parents functioned, how they thought, and the next step on the line, the ways that each of their faith traditions were practiced. You know, my father's family is Jewish, and my father, sort of religiously otherwise, would more identify as an atheist or agnostic, but the term he used was, of course, culturally Jewish. And we belonged to a synagogue that was very progressive and a sense of social justice or and tzedakah was the core of that community. And my own understanding of what it is to be Jewish in the world that I realize is something that I, I have taken from that tradition. And similarly, um, my mother went to a Unitarian Universalist church in Oakland or the Unitarian Universalist church in <laughs> Oakland. Um, and similarly, it's, it was a community where social action and social justice were at the very core of the work that that community did mm -hmm. and how you make the faith that you discuss on Sunday in that sense, or, not Sunday when it comes to synagogue, but how does that permeate into your life? And both of those in many ways, different communities and traditions, the line that they both shared was that action is required. And because of these, because of these things we talk about, this is the outlet. It was in the here and now and not about, um, the next life kind of thing. So that, that was the core of how I was raised. And I, I don't think I was conscious of it really. I mean, I knew we, I knew we went to protests a lot. I, I, I knew that I knew that because it was what we were doing, but I don't think I made the connection, but I think that's also because where I grew up, that was such a, it didn't feel abnormal. Yeah. Like it didn't feel like, you know, Oh, these communities are the places where that happens. It felt like that's what communities do. Mm -hmm. And so I saw all of the other differences that they had in trying to balance them and work through those. And it's only in having distance and having lived in other places 
that I can look back and say, oh, that's that's not that's not everyone's experience with organized religion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that has colored a lot of the ways that I grapple with and juggle my sense of faith and hope in the world and the gift that on some ways there is hope in action. Mm. Like that is the avenue that you have. And there, there is one and there is on some ways a, it's tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that it's very difficult to, in the way that I conceptualize faith based upon how I grew up, it's not a respite from the despair of the world. Right. And that's, is in some ways the challenge is how do how do you feed your ability to be resilient enough to take action from which you get hope, but there has to be some other practice or understanding to sort of feed the root of that. And in being separate from really any faith community now where I'm for the most part, it's my own practice unless I'm visiting my father and it happens to be, high holy days or something that that broadening sense of faith hope practice self-awareness and space for self that makes so much sense that that is a part of the picture like it needs to be as far as it is for myself um but it's not something that immediately made sense for me uh growing up and as a child and as i've moved away from home and in and out of faith communities, what it is that I carry no matter what that allows me to keep going. Yeah. I'm curious. So did the, the civic action that you were a part of, was that within the faith community? Like, did you participate with your group or your faith group in those actions? Or was that also separate from that? Did you go out in the world on your own to do that? Were you sent out in the world by your faith to do that? Uh, both would be the closest answer. Um, you know, I, I went to protests. There was often protest groups um, in the run-up to the Iraq war, for example, that were, we marched with the Unitarian church. That was where we went and organized. That's where I had civil disobedience training in one of the halls in the church. So, you know, that was a part of it. There were similarly, um, you know, women in black or otherwise communities in the Jewish community that were also the avenues that I saw that uh, for organizing were within those communities. I also, you know, when I was in high school, we were doing letter writing campaigns and having little protests on the side of the road by the high school. And I think to some degree, there was a beginning of that work that was fed by, and I was taught a lot of the tools, both by my parents and by other people who were in those communities. But it also then became just a part of my own identity that this is what I do. This is what one does. Do you remember when that sense of personal faith came about for you when you started recognizing that like, this isn't just something that I'm taught by my parents. Like I, I have ownership over this and, and this is a choice for me moving forward. I think, 
I, I guess the beginning of that story, I have to say the fact that I, you know, I have like my two parents who were from very different faith traditions. Um, neither of them were religious or particularly connected to their religion when I was a very small child. It was after they split up that my father went into a relationship with my stepmother, who was more strongly Jewish identified at the time. And in the development of also me starting, they wanted me to do Hebrew school so I could have a bat mitzvah. And that spurred my mother in saying like, oh, you know, there, there's, she's going to get, she's going to get that. Then there's this other tradition that is a part of her history, her background that I want to convey to her. Um, and that's actually when she started going to the Unitarian Universalist Church. So there was in some ways also built in, which is probably why I didn't really take into stock how similar the communities were, because in my mind, there was a juxtaposition and a bit of conflict between the two because one was my father and one was my mother. And I was starting like nine or 10, I guess, when I started going to Hebrew school, can't remember exactly now. So they were, that was when I started finding my way in, but it was, there was always a feeling that I was at that point sort of in between and wasn't really allowed to own either of them was how I felt at the time. Um, I think that the clearest example was probably around the time, or I think it was probably after my bat mitzvah. And as I was having my coming of age in the Unitarian Universalist church, which was like slightly later. So I had a little bit of space that I would, I would go into the services And my way of grappling with this was I would pick a word in every sort of line or phrase of a hymn that I wouldn't sing, Hmm. that there was something like I I had to symbolically like leave space. Otherwise I felt on some level that I was being um, not disrespectful, but that there was, there was a part of myself that I had to also be loyal to, which of course is, you know, a child of divorce feeling that, you know, I can't totally agree with my mom because I can't do wrong by my father and vice versa. So in some ways it meant that I was a child of both worlds and neither world. And eventually around the time when I was having to go through my the coming of age process, the church where we had to write a, sort of our credo (laughs) and wrap my brain around, like, what is it that I believe? And I, I really, I, I remember it being like a trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle where I have all of these pieces of my family's backgrounds and history and trying to make them fit and there was the third tradition that my mother also provided was I also grew up going to many pagan rituals for solstices or um, so that was also a, a part of my growing up. So here I am trying to balance out 
Judaism, Unitarian Universalism, and this version of sort of pagan belief. Somehow they both had, there had to be a way that they worked. I like needed to create a way that my brain could hold what felt familiar and comforting and inspiring from all of those things without feeling like I was abandoning anyone. Mm -hmm. And what ended up coming out of that was I kind of termed what my religion was, which was Junipegatarian. <laughs> and that was, that was what I said. And I probably couldn't have gotten away with that anywhere other than the East Bay. But um, that was in some ways the first time that I was coming to claim some version of my own experience of faith or belief. And it then came much later. Also the idea that I could be 100% of more than one thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's great. You know, which there are a lot of people, understandably, who have very different backgrounds and understandings of faith and religion, where that seems like a, or I've had people who are like, that's a cop out. You can't do that. But it's like, I don't, okay, <laughs> think that if you want, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't affect it because I'm, I'm not having that setup of belief for anyone else to accept it or not. It's what makes sense for me. It's interesting that you say that because it, that seems to me connected to that small moment you talked about of being in those, you know, in your Jewish services or in Unitarian services and leaving out words that that was already that statement of like, this is for me, not for anyone else. And I get to decide what this means and looks like. Yeah. And and that's what's interesting is it both had that I get to decide, like I have that I even have the ability to try and make these things coexist. And then the next step is you can sing that whole song and they still can coexist. Yes. You can have this entire experience and it doesn't negate another experience that you also have. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So where do you feel you are now in that journey of blending these different traditions and living a hundred percent of them in the way that you want to live them <laughs> or the, the way that they influence you? Yeah. I, I think I've had to come to, Maybe there'll be a, a, a time in my life where it feels a little bit more solidified, but it's really ebbed and flowed quite a bit over the last 10 years or so. And I think there is a, there's a way of, of claiming some version of this, the Jewishness, <laughs> whatever that kind of mode is in that appreciation for ritual and community and mental space, which that has given to me. And similar, I think there are practices and ways, things that I learned from Unitarian Universalist traditions. Um, I was farther away from other influences that were the more sort of pagan part of it, which in some ways felt like the one that was the most self-generated. And I think there's some space of, of, my working again in exploring how those things, not even how those things intersect, but what, what this, what it is that I need. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't have, like, I don't have a, a, a term for it or a name for it. And in some ways I think that's sort of a point in the process and progress. There was a period of time where I needed to have an identity that could be named so that when people asked me, I had a response. And in some ways it was the only people who would actually ask about it were people that I was likely to actually want to talk about it with. Right. There were certain people where they just get kind of confused and back off. And I, I don't care <laughs> in the same way now. So it doesn't have um, a name and it has, a, I think there's a certain more of a sense of feeling out those connections as I move through the world. And that's, I think, where I am living now in this with little, you know, pops on other sides. And it means that some people really identify me as Jewish and some people have no sense of me having any religion or faith or otherwise. And I don't entirely mind either of those things, really. It's interesting to me that what I'm hearing as a thread through your whole journey is freedom and freedom to choose has mm. been really important to you. And that now it sounds like you're giving yourself the ultimate freedom by not even defining it. And that it's it's about felt sense and where you are in the moment. Yeah. And in having having connection in some ways when I want it and need it and not judging from myself for that, you know, this year I didn't go on a Zoom Yom Kippur service, but was with myself. And next year I might want that. I might want to have that experience of those songs, those words, that's ritual. Yeah. In a more um, external sense. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm drastically changing, that I don't need to apologize to myself for that, but that I also similarly want to be able to give myself the space to do what is required in that moment in time. Yeah. Even if it doesn't have the same form. So yeah, that that's, I think there's a lessening of self-judgment that I had quite a, that I had a lot when I was a kid of, you know, wanting to do everyone else right. And then, you know, and then trying to make what, you know, making it right for everyone else somehow fit within myself. Yeah. And I've gotten to a point where I don't need, like I, I give myself and don't do wrong by other people in other ways. Yeah. This is not a conduit for that. I think um, I think one thing that really strikes me in what you're saying is I think a lot of people, when they think about approaching a faith tradition or or maybe reflect on a faith tradition they came from, they think a lot about, you know, I had to meet these criteria in order to be included or in order to belong. And what you're saying is that belonging actually comes from you saying you belong and you identifying as you are a part of this when you choose to do that. Yes. And I think there's, there's the one other layer of that that I had is also having Jewish background, but it's through my father. And on top of that being very progressive tradition and the number of times that I have been someone has known, oh, but your mom isn't Jewish, so you're not really Jewish. Right. That has, that's come up 
a lot. And there have been moments in my life where I felt like I really, I would lean into, I would lean into that background and that tradition a little bit to spite those people. (laughs) Because there's like, you know, you don't get to freaking tell me what I am or am not based on, you know, go have that thought of yourself. You don't need to put it on me. Yeah. And do I need, and I, but the number of times that I had to have in my head, like I've been bought mitzvah, you can't get rid of me now. <laughs> that moment or, you know, having someone who I worked with um, on four really um, somewhat joking, like jokingly in that kind of, as if it was supposed to be affectionate, calling me a half breed um, and just having to sit through that and be like, what? on earth does that even mean like why why do we get to do that yeah um so that's that's part of that external and there was a lot of there have been a there were a number of times where i would get quite hurt by the idea that that i wasn't allowed to claim a part of my own background unless i you know became almost like born again into it. I had a Hebrew teacher. And as I was preparing for my bat mitzvah, I was getting a new teacher to really help me with the Torah portion and language. And I had one meeting with this woman. And in talking to me and learning about my family's backgrounds and that I was a child of two different faith traditions, her saying to a 12-year-old, oh, so this means you're choosing Judaism. Right. And, you know, thank goodness for my father and otherwise that we all, that it was completely accepted that like, no, this person doesn't come back into our home. Right. Just like, cause that's, that's no, that's not what this means. Um, so it's an interesting way how all of these things have kind of woven in and out of time and certain things are born of my own self judgment and external judgment And there's like a resiliency in certain senses of responding to that. And there's also ways in which I've um, like a a weight and a heaviness that I've had at points in my life in having to prove myself to other people or having to hide parts of myself to other people. And I think, I think you're right that something about this particular place that I found myself now is acknowledging and having all of that background, but not being swayed by it. Yeah. Letting the whole story just be the story. Yeah. I mean, those are the, that's the foundation that I exist on and it's brought me to a very specific place. Yeah. So I'm curious then to talk about the newest layer <laughs> that you've now added onto this eclectic and multidimensional background that you have in faith, whereas, or which is that your partner is also from a different faith background now and of a different faith tradition. So I'm curious as to kind of how you two met and then what the process of first realizing that and, and sorting that out was like, and then how is how has that continued to unfold over your time together? Yeah, 
Um, it is in some ways kind of funny and also makes complete sense. Um, you know, I live in New York city. And so of course, you know, I've background as an actor. So of course we met in a restaurant. <laughs> working. Um, and I think that knowing our sort of our faith backgrounds that actually came out relatively quickly to some degree by necessity. Um, he comes from a Muslim majority country and is an immigrant. So there it's, it's kind of was all just like in the, the basic background of how did you grow up? What's your life like kind of thing. Right. Um, the layer on top of that is that he himself identifies as atheist. Mm. So it's just interesting on some level, if you like use the silly version of it, like there's the Junipegatarian and the atheist Muslim which if you know, of course, <laughs> we all we all sit in there. Um, so neither of us have a like traditional self sense within religion, which allows a certain amount of flexibility. Um, it has been really interesting with my background being so much about the malleability of faith and my own claiming that malleability his experience of faith is completely the opposite. There is, you know, this is the way and you are or you aren't. And the idea of picking and choosing parts of a tradition in his experience is not something that you can do. Right. So that's been interesting in trying to explain my own background. Um, so it's sort of those things where it's at the core of a lot of stuff and also isn't the primary way that either of us identify. I mean, what, what comes to mind, I think it was like the first year we were together, he decided that we were going to get a tiny Christmas tree. So, you know, there's like the Jewish Unitarian girl and the Muslim boy going to get a pagan tree. By, yeah. Like get a pagan tree, but put lights and I like when like bought, some Christmas ornaments. So I had like two, but that there's also a certain understanding where it was also, it was like Christmas and it wasn't religious. It was the kind of, in some ways, yes, closest to pagan. It was on some level sort of like winter celebration traditions, cozy, whatever that, that image is of Christmas that we wanted to kind of have together in our silly, happy, only been together a certain number of months kind of delirium. Um, <laughs> but that also was immediately the space of what was possible. Yeah. So I think that's, that's part of how it works. We have, a, we have a lot of conversations about how do you, how do you place faith or religion and science and, you know, the ills that, religion has done to the world and how it blocks things that are necessary in our present world from coming into being. And we have very different understandings of how that works. And it's at some points a challenge, but I think it's, it's for the most part, very interesting conversations that we grapple with and sometimes become fiery and ridiculous, but for the most part are about how do we, how do we live in this world with our disparate backgrounds and experiences that are true? And do they negate everything? And 
he's much more of an absolutist than I am. And I can be, you know, super flexible and super Berkeley and accepting. And that is not, I have a lot, I have my entire life of practice of doing that. And that's relatively new for him. So it's a, it is, it's an interesting layer of having those conversations and really grappling with, you know, what is the purpose for this? Is it trying to ask the same questions that science is asking? And that's why we have that problem. Or, you know, it was at some point because people had questions about why does the sun rise and set? And they had didn't have the tools that we have now to understand the movement of the earth and the moon and other planets and the sun. So then what is it now that you're getting from those faiths or religions? And that's part of the moment where I'm like, okay, that's well, it's not, I'm not religious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. There are so many problems and challenges, but there's something else. There's some sense of, um, I think the closest thing that I've been able to explain is a sense of wonder or awe or magic that is not about wiping away anything in reality and is more a way of, for me, staying present and surprised and in connection with things than it is about anything in kind of an organized religion way of thinking. Yeah. And realizing that people have different ways of connecting to their own sense of wonder and the large list largeness of life and the world and nature and for him, look, listening to a lecture on physics actually will do that for him. Mm -hmm. um, and realizing like that, and not in the sense that it's, you know, a, it's not the religion kind of dogma mode, but it, it evokes that sense of thought and wonder and enjoyment in the universe and how small we are and how big we are. Like, all of those things, that's what works to do that thing for him. Yeah. And I've come to understand that part more and more and be able to appreciate that. And I think in turn that then feeds back into my own ways of having that sense of, of the magic of the world and of nature and that are, I think is, is closer to any version of, of where I get that, you know, his might be that lecture and, and mine is, standing with my feet in the ocean. Like that's the closest that I get to do that where I, I like know instantly, okay, that's, that's the place. That's the moment. And I can actually physically feel like I'll start feeling this kind of tenseness in myself. Um, and ugh, everything feels a bit, and sometimes I'll sit there and be like, Oh, I haven't actually seen a, like been at a large body of water or by the ocean in like a year and a half. I have to go get my, like my dose. Yeah. So in that sense, the, the differences that we have have allowed me to, to find my own space a little bit more and haven't been for once you have like differences and it's not about um, having to fit necessarily puzzle pieces together in the same way. I get to start feeling like echoes of themes or otherwise. And it's a lot more, 
it's creative out of a desire for creativity and not out of a need to fit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious where you see overlap in each other and if that has evolved at all in your time together and kind of a part of that is also, you know, you have these differences and you talk about how sometimes that kind of comes ahead to a head, but what keeps you coming back to the table? Like what excites you about this? You've talked a little bit about, you know, the difference teaches you things about yourself, but what, what keeps the conversation going for the two of you? Um, I think to some degree we're both um, stubborn <laughs> and our mode of um, like talking. So that, that keeps certain doors open, even when uh, it gets messy. Um, and then there are, there's overlap in when we really get into a sense of, I'd say the natural world is probably the closest overlap mm. and the way that we may process that or those feelings is, is somewhat different, but I think there is a, um, the way that that feeds us and the way we think and, and connects to things is in some ways similar that we can you know, have overlap in these things that feel, you feel a sense of connection. There's a connection to something outside of yourself mm-hmm. that we both have in those spaces and an appreciation and an understanding of those places and ways of being that we also both hold. So I think that's, that's the sense of overlap where we can both sort of see an echo in some ways of ourselves, but also it's, it's like an echo and you're like, I didn't know that that part of myself could echo and be reflected into this entirely different um, form or shape. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's, um, that's where that place lives. And, and I, and I think that's also, it's, that's the farthest away from the baggage of religion, Mm. which means it's kind it's cleaner. It doesn't have, it doesn't have the weight of all of those different challenges because we both have very, we have very different ways that we've processed the faiths that we grew up within. Yeah. And I'd say that that affects how we both function and these kinds of modes, but remarkably enough, it's somehow there, there is that there are these little pockets where it's like, Oh, it's kind of, this place is safe. Yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) So I'm curious now, because I think there are a lot of people out there who have these eclectic faith backgrounds and then also end up partnering or in community with people that come from other places as well. What would you say or, or what kind of advice would you give to someone who's struggling with how to, as you put before, make sense of the jigsaw puzzle? that is their belief system or their, the way they see the world. Yeah. I think that the step of exploration and learning is one that we often skip because we think we already know. Mm. And I think, I think everyone has from their own experience, what their concept is of the other is as much about their own background Hmm. and influences as it is about that other person's actual experience within that. Yeah. 
So I think being able to have this space for learning and curiosity and in some ways like quieting the part of your brain that needs that like wants to grab at the thing that's like, oh, I can use that piece and then hold on to it. Like, oh, that that's different or that's the same. And I'm going to grasp and that's where we're going to go because I'm already trying to make it work. It's to, you know, see those things, maybe like file it away, depending on how your brain works, like take a little note of it and have a little notebook where you go back to those things. But I think um, the number of times where I've found that a conflict is in part because there's some baseline understanding that is different, that is assumed by one person to be one thing and by the other to be something else. So, yeah, I, I think that's the the step and the challenge of not end gaming to making it work. Mm. And that is, that is something that I, I myself struggle with. Um, I love on some ways the jigsaw part of analysis and storytelling and I'm good at it and I'm good at it in part because I've had, over 30 years of practice. <laughs> um, and as is often the case, our our gifts and skills are in part because of our own challenges that we've gone through. And of course, that, that means that you have a skill. And that's in some ways probably why I am saying that that is the thing that, you, that is often missing because it is my own impetus to um, try and make things work. Yeah. And buzz past the part that is about sitting in the learning and curiosity without needing to immediately make everything okay. Yeah. Yeah. Letting the discomfort be a space of learning. Yeah, exactly. And finding those moments in myself and trying to have a sense of perspective that that's something that I would do. I think it's hard, it's hard for us to see that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier when someone else has, you realize, so, oh, someone didn't under, someone missed that part. Oh, you don't, oh, they don't know this thing. That is a, can be a visceral experience. And realizing that you very well may have also been the one doing the exact same thing to someone else. Because the entire point is it's someone else's visceral experience. Um, yeah. That's the step one. And then if you can find joy in the, like, in the curiosity, in the learning, in not everything necessarily fitting, then it becomes a lot easier to live in the fact that it doesn't always fit. Yeah. In the way that I, I think we might pregame how it should fit, that we're going to agree on everything. Um, because... I mean, in any relationship, with whatever background, do you ever always agree on everything? Is that a possibility? Um, my own personal instinct on that would be if it, if it was, that would be really boring. Yeah, I think there's too many books and movies and songs <laughs> to prove that that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. And, and it's, you know, I think we get we get trapped in things if that ends up being our sort of goal of the human experience um, or maybe it is something to strive towards, but with the understanding that, you know, like perfection, it's something you can strive for, but if you ever get it, then everything's done. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's thank you for that. That's such a good reminder. <laughs> so before I get to my last two questions for you, I just want to give you a space. Is there anything else that you want to say? Anything that came to your mind as we were talking or anything that you want to add to this conversation? I think I'd, um, not to delve into it, but I, I think a certain level of transparency that I, I think we, I haven't discussed and to acknowledge that when it comes to these kinds of disparate faith traditions that often, often the primary challenge or is not the two people in the relationship that there is, you know, in faith backgrounds, you have families, you have traditions of, of multiple different levels. And those are the big things. Like there's, there's the version of how does it work in your home? And then there's, you know, moving that out of how that works in your communities, which may be much more different and much less invested in making that meshing work. Right. And that, that is another challenge that I, I think I would be somewhat disingenuous in having this conversation without acknowledging, um, because that I think is, is the other challenge that I've come across and into that is real and is challenging and in some ways can be quite heartbreaking. So that's, I think, I think that is one of those challenges in these overlapping relationships. And sometimes we get lucky and, um, and some situations are more challenging. And I've seen that in my family and in, in a number of different ways since I, I, you know, most of the people in my family are in, in some way interfaith relationships. So it's always different. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good thing to add. Thank you for saying that. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. One, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something that is greater than yourself. And three, as something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of this definition to you as a question. So for you, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to in your life? I think the closest, I mean, it's interesting that this even has the word duty because that word reminds me of civic duty hmm. and that, that sense of responsibility to the community and world through my own action is what that brings to mind. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you put your faith or trust in that is greater than yourself? I think um, I think that's the part where I've I've learned that is the the scope of the universe and existence, and that that knowledge that there is so much that is bigger than me hmm. that is bigger than me in a way that I, is is beyond anything that necessarily would have 
be influenced by me. And then there's, and then every step down. Um, and that allows a both perspective and in some ways, even a comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The outside, the, I mean, the world, nature, or all of those bits and pieces, small to large from, you know, frogs to Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I I believe and I feel that everybody has something at the core of them that they believe to be true, even if it doesn't seem to make logical sense. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's where I would put that sense of wonder or magic, mm. sort of a belief in the wondrous way that all of this exists and that there is, it feels somewhat like, it always feels silly for me to end up saying magic when I don't necessarily have a definition of what that even is. And yet I think that is at the core of so much the magic and the wonder and the not knowing and knowing at the same time. Yeah. So do you have a spiritual practice that you turn to on a regular basis? It could be, you know, weekly, monthly that connects you to your, your sense of faith or hope. Yes. Of course there, there are many in different ways. Um, in this conversation, I remembered the one of, of, the sort of yearly putting my feet in the ocean. Mm. But the one that is most integrated into my daily life is one that I I would not have historically registered as faith. And yet, as I was thinking about what these things are that um, these questions, I realized like, oh, that that fits (laughs) the way that I use that thing, um, which is craft. Mm. For me, it's particularly fiber craft and knitting and how I've, I've used that as both there's a, the sort of meditative self-soothing repetition part of it. And there's also the part of it that is about taking things in one form and with your own hands in a certain amount of time, transmuting it into something else. Yeah. And as a version of a sort of a, a private personal practice of action in certain way where I can have direct contact with cause and effect. There's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, and trying to find that as a practice that can steal me enough to have action in other ways without always needing to feel the result because that's often not how things work. You know, we, we never know when the result is going to come due. And um, what's nice about this is even if it takes a long time and in some ways, because like knitting a sweater takes a freaking long time, but you're watching it happen and it will happen. So yeah, that has become um, in the last few years, I think particularly having that as a, um, not just something that I sometimes do or like a skill, but something that gives me a, a sense of comfort and a sense of almost like a, a, there's a certain power that you have. It is that magic thing. Um, 
my boyfriend actually sometimes refers to it as witchcraft um, because he just he'll watch he'll watch me knitting and just does not compute how it that works how you know these little knots we can turn into something usable and then there are multiple layers of making things for other people of making things at certain times in my life and in some ways those experiences and that time is imbued into that fabric mm. so yeah that 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 i think is is my my little faith and hope practice of of being able to affect change and find those moments in myself where i can like everything may be completely insane and horrible in the world and i can zoom down and this thing works and it is building towards something and it came from something and in some ways it's like you know i've um at one point during our, our quarantine i have you know these like, piles of wool basically these like fluff basically that i decided it's like i put together in a moment of frustration and <laughs> despair of having nothing to do and i sort of carded it all together and made these huge bats of blue fluff and clouds that I've then spun into yarn and then I'm going to, you know, knit into a sweater and that sort of gift of being able to give myself such a long-term project that I can check in and out of. And, you know, it'll be my COVID quarantine sweater and I will, a lot of these things will come up if I pull that out of my closet and I'll be able to connect with even talking about making that here. And I find that really comforting and an important way of slowing down and taking in the moment that I am in. Yeah. And how did that practice come into your life? My mother taught me or started to try and teach me when I was quite young and I didn't really take it up, but there was some little level of it. And then when I was in high school was when there was this early sort of a new wave of knitting that came through. It was, it was the books stitch and bitch came out. Right. <laughs> and so a bunch of my friends were all learning and I, you know, we, we started kind of half learning by the books. It wasn't on YouTube really yet. And I had my mom to help me out. So we had this little burst there of creativity and then many, many years after that, I would sort of pop in and out. I'd make a scarf for someone for Christmas and I'd carry around this like box of yarn through every apartment that I've had. And then, and then 2016 happened. And I think it was, you know, I, I, 2015, I knit my boyfriend a really nice scarf for his birthday. So like we knew that I had that box there. I knew where it was in my apartment. It wasn't in the back of the closet kind of thing. And then um, the election happened. And actually suddenly then people were all like, oh, we're supposed to make these pussy hats and people need them. And oh, I don't know how to knit. And I was like, oh, actually, I know how to knit. I can make some for people. Sure. Um, so I started knitting a few of them and suddenly I was like, oh, this feels so much better. (laughs) Um, and so I think that was the first place where I was able to really actually feel the psychological effect of making things and the purpose and what that 
practice was and how comforting it could be. Mm. So it, it is something that came into my life in a daily way, specifically as a sort of bulwark to despair and has been since. Yeah. Yeah. And you can find Talia's mindful knitting practice in the spiritual practice library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our delightful music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk to Al Karim Versi about how his life as a city kid in Nairobi, Kenya was turned upside down when a solo camping trip in the Kenyan wilderness brought him into deep connection with nature. And since then, This connection has helped him find his ground again and again, no matter where he finds his feet. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.